And now as we come to Your Word, O Lord, we remember that Your Word is inerrant, inspired, infallible, that it will never fail, that it will accomplish what You desire to accomplish with it. And we know, O Lord, that You desire our growth in Christ's likeness. And so we pray, O Lord, that You would use Your Word as a means to that end. To grow us in Christ's likeness. We pray that You would speak to us through Your Word. That You would show us, show us, Lord, how to persist in our faith. How to persevere. Help us, O Lord, avoid pitfalls in our journey that would hinder our walk or that would cause us to think that we would be better off turning around. We pray, O Lord, that Your Word would instruct us that it would correct us, that it would train us for good works of righteousness, for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 12. Today we'll be looking at verses 12 to 19 in one of the best-known scenes from Jesus' ministry, the scene that's known as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, We just had a sermon from Pastor Bruce Ray uh, last month for Palm Sunday on uh, on this theme, on this this scene of, uh, of Palm Sunday. It's rich. It's found in every one of the Gospels, so it's important for us to understand for a variety of reasons. And today we're going to be covering one of those reasons, and that being... It teaches us how to not be an apostate. If you don't know what an apostate is, it's somebody who walks away from the faith. The theme of the opening passages of, uh, of John's Gospel in the 12th chapter, it, it's one of, the, one of the most memorable scenes where Mary uh, breaks open this, this vial, this, this jar of very costly perfume made of pure nard. And she anoints Jesus with it. And she illustrated, as we saw, she illustrated the fact that true devotion is both costly and courageous. And of course, we also then saw the contrast that John presented us with as we saw the devotion of Judas, who was also a very devout person. But his devotion was a devotion that's common to all of mankind. His devotion was to himself. First and foremost, he was his highest priority. And when he saw this bottle of perfume being used to anoint Jesus, he complained. He said, hey, you know, wouldn't it be better if we were to, to keep this perfume and sell it and use the proceeds to, to feed the poor? His argument, as we saw, was essentially that it would be more important, that it maybe would be more noble to love our neighbors than it is to worship Jesus. And of course, the idea that it's more important to love our neighbors than it is to worship Jesus is completely false. That is simply not the case. I posted this principle from this passage on social media this past week. And I, I could not believe how, how far it traveled and how quickly it traveled, but it did what truth always does. It divided people. There were many who saw that indeed uh, that is the principle being refuted in this passage, that it's more important to love our neighbors than it is to worship Jesus. But then there were many who, uh, who were outraged by it and who argued against it, noting that uh, you know, we're told why Judas said what he said. He said what he said because he was a thief. And that's true, isn't it? And the answer is yes and no. Uh, Yes, it's true that Judas said it because he wanted to steal uh, some of the proceeds for himself. But when we look at the passage in its entirety, what we see is that Jesus doesn't respond to the fact that Judas was a thief. Jesus says nothing about it, in fact. Instead of responding to his motivations, Jesus speaks to his argument that it's better to, uh, to love our neighbors than it is to worship Jesus. And of course... Jesus responded that uh, by, by affirming that, no, it's more important to worship Him than it is to love our neighbors. 
And that was the application of this passage long, long before COVID-19 uh, brought, uh, brought forth arguments that the church should close their doors as a way to demonstrate their love for neighbor. Which, of course, is a silly and even self-contradictory thing to say. Self-contradictory because the idea that you can love your neighbors without worshiping Jesus rightly, worshiping Jesus rightly is the most loving thing that we can do for our neighbors if we're not worshiping Jesus, and we're not giving them a place to worship Jesus, it is actually the single most hateful thing that we can do for our neighbors. And that was an argument that Jesus clearly, clearly rejected. Mary's devotion was commended by Christ, but Judas's devotion, to himself that is, would lead to his condemnation. For Mary, Jesus was worth everything For Judas, Jesus wasn't even worth 300 denarii. Both Mary and Judas were devoted to something or to someone, but the difference was the object of their devotion. Mary's was proper. Judas's was wicked. But this is not where the lesson on devotion ends. In fact, on the surface, Devotion to Christ appears to peak in this chapter. Actually, in fact, it appears to peak in the very next passage that we'll be looking at today as we come to the scene that is often referred to as Jesus' triumphal entry. If there's one thing that it looks like we're seeing in this passage, it's a high, high level of devotion to Christ. But it's not. It's... There are hundreds and there are maybe even thousands of people, but it's a picture of devotion, but it's not a picture of devotion to Christ. It's a picture of devotion to a failing cause. It's a picture of false expectations. It's a picture of how and why people fall away from the faith. Because we know, don't we, that by the end of the week, The same people who start off this Passover week by shouting, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, will be the same people shouting, crucify Him. Crucify Him. But there are plenty of things that can result in somebody walking away from the faith. And in one sense, I suppose that everybody who walks away from the faith has their own story. So it's different for every person who apostatizes. Everybody has their own perspective. I, you know, I, I don't deny that. For one person, it might be that they witnessed some form of abuse from a spiritual leader, or, or worse, maybe they were abused uh, physically or spiritually by a spiritual leader. It happens. I, I mean, I, I hate that it happens, but I realize that it does happen. Uh, for someone else, maybe they had questions or or concerns or doubts that nobody seemed to have any answers for. I mean, everybody has their own story. Everybody who walks away from the faith has their own story. But at the same time, every story of people who walk away from the Christian faith, they all have elements in common. At the root of every instance of apostasy, of somebody walking away from the Christian faith, you'll find the person's experience with Christianity started with some kind of false idea of what Christianity was about and or they had false expectations about what Jesus would do for them in this life. The truth is, most apostates don't look anything like Judas. Uh, They're probably not that obvious. But they have that much in common with Judas. Judas started with false expectations probably a wrong idea of who Jesus was and what He had to offer in this life. It's vitally important, friends. It's so important that we understand who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. In fact, our eternal destiny hinges on the truth about those things. Who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. But if you have the wrong idea about Jesus. If you're not sure who He is, if you're not 
sure, if you're, if you're confused about what He offers to you in this life, you will eventually be sorely disappointed with Christianity and you will likely become an apostate at some point if your thinking isn't corrected early on. The triumphal entry of Christ is an illustration on behalf of the people of what apostasy looks like. They're wanting and they're expecting Him to be something other than He is. And for that reason, by the time the week is over, they've completely turned on Him. They've walked away from Him. And they're calling for His murder. So the point of this passage, therefore, is that you must make sure that you're devoted to Jesus for the right reasons. Because if you're devoted to Him for the wrong reasons, your devotion will be superficial at best and it will not stand the test of time. Let me say that again. The point of this passage is that you must make sure that you are devoted to Jesus for the right reasons. Because if you're not, your faith will not endure. Your faith will not persist. So we'll start by looking at the first few verses. Let's look at verses 12 to 16. John writes, On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet Him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. Let's start with what we see at the beginning of that last verse, so verse 16 where we're told that the disciples were confused by what they saw. that They didn't understand these things at first. It wasn't until much later when Christ was glorified, John tells us, that is, after the resurrection of Christ, that they understood all these things that took place between verses 12 and 15. Now, maybe you noticed or maybe you didn't, but Jesus has suddenly taken a very different approach to his ministry. And that's what the disciples are confused about. With less than a week until he's crucified, he's no longer ministering privately to his disciples. Remember, that's how chapter 11 ended, and that's how chapter 12 started. He's ministering very privately only to his disciples. But now, starting here in verse 12, He's now very public. He's more public than he's ever been. His ministry is is now more out in the open than it's ever been, despite the fact that the religious leaders have hatched a plot to murder him. In fact, if we understand the text, we, we understand that Jesus takes a very public approach to ministry because of the plot to murder him. But up until this point, We've seen Jesus doing things like withdrawing from the masses. As much as possible, He's avoided making a public spectacle of Himself. Remember what He did back in chapter 6 after the feeding of the 5,000 families when nobody believed? What did He do? He didn't stay public. What did He do? He withdrew. Think of the times that Jesus specifically instructed His disciples not to tell others who He was. Not to tell others what He had done. Matthew 12.16 tells us His instructions after healing a man with a withered hand. Uh, Matthew writes uh, that, that Jesus warned them not to tell who He was. And Matthew explains this, noting, In verses 17 and 19, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. In other words, he will have a very private ministry. Following Peter's famous confession of Christ in Matthew chapter 16, we read this in verse 20. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. In Mark chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus healed the daughter of a man named Jairus. And we read, and He gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. 
And again, in Mark chapter 9, verse 9, after Peter, James, and John had just witnessed the, the transfiguration up on the mount, uh, we read this, as they were coming down from the mountain, He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Now this is all very confusing for us, isn't it? Because in our minds, we're thinking, wouldn't it be great for everybody to know? And the answer is, Yes and no. No, that wasn't the time. Yes, the time was coming. And that's what happens at the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. That's when everything is becoming more public. So why are the disciples confused? What was it that they didn't understand? They didn't understand why Jesus was suddenly drawing so much attention to Himself, especially in light of the fact that He knew, and we can be sure that the disciples undoubtedly knew too, that there was a plot for Jesus to be murdered if He showed up at the Passover feast. Now we might say that Jesus was drawing attention to Himself because He knew that His time had come. He knew that His time had come over and over again through John's Gospel, throughout Jesus' ministry. We see this theme of Jesus uh, his, his saying that His time had not come. But what did Jesus say at the beginning of His ministry? At the wedding in Cana when Mary was urging Him to do something about the fact that they had run out of wine. Jesus said, My hour has not yet come. But now, here in chapter 12, it has. The time has come. And His time to be public is with this entry into Jerusalem. And so, His approach to His ministry is suddenly completely turned around. Completely changed. He's gone from being as private as possible, fairly private and withdrawn, to being as public and as open as He can possibly be. He's not hiding anything anymore. And so the disciples are confused by this. So the way the scene is set, it's clear that there is a lot of excitement as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. He's fulfilling prophecy. Fulfilling one prophecy of the prophet Zechariah by riding into town on the back of a donkey's colt. Uh, perhaps part of the reason for all of the excitement is that so many people had heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. But perhaps the excitement also has something to do with the expectation of the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy regarding the 70 weeks from Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. In this passage, which we don't have time to, uh, to go into in a whole lot of detail, we read this. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the wrongdoing, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and understand that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with streets and moat even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined, and he will confirm a covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come the one who makes desolate, until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, gushes forth on the one who makes desolate." There's a lot to unpack there. We're not even going to try today. Uh, there are books and volumes of books written on this passage. But this prophecy, what we have to understand is that this prophecy was given to Israel in a time when they had been taken captive by the Babylonians for 70 years. The Hebrew phrase that gets translated 70 weeks actually is referring to 70 sevens. Uh, in other words, 70 times seven. In other words, 490, 490 years to be precise. That would be the amount of time that would pass from the rebuilding of Jerusalem, from the decree, the order of a king, to rebuild Jerusalem 
until Israel would finish the wrongdoing, make an end of sin, make atonement for guilt, and when everlasting righteousness would be brought in by Messiah the Prince. If somebody wanted to do the computations, do all the math for this, starting with the order to rebuild Jerusalem under the prophet Nehemiah, uh, the time for this to happen was on the very day when Christ triumphantly entered into Jerusalem on a donkey, presenting Himself very clearly as the fulfillment of these messianic prophecies and promises. Through Daniel, God made known the very exact day that the Messiah would be revealed. And through the prophet Zechariah, God made known how the Messiah would identify Himself on that day. And the people are absolutely ecstatic. They are excited. They are elated. They are joyously crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They're laying down palm branches before Him. Matthew chapter 21, verse 8 tells us most of the crowd spread their coats in the road. If you imagine what this must have looked like, you can see it's a scene of elation and excitement and devotion. It sounds like an amazing opportunity to talk about Jesus, doesn't it? To share the Gospel. And it was. And people did. As we learn in the next few verses, as the testimony of Lazarus continues to be shared. Let's look at verses 17-19. to John writes, So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. On the surface, just the surface level, it sure looks like everything is just perfect in the world, doesn't it? Everything seems to be right in the world at first glance. But if we look closely, and if we're discerning with what we read, we'll notice that there is one thing that's missing. John isn't telling us about anybody who's believing in Jesus. They're coming to Him to meet Him because of the sign He had done in raising Lazarus from the dead. But John doesn't tell us about anybody who repents and believes savingly in Jesus. Keep in mind that the reason that John wrote this book was so that the reader would believe in Jesus. So people are talking about what Jesus did for Lazarus and it's adding to the excitement of the moment. People are coming to Jesus. They're meeting Jesus. They're welcoming Jesus after hearing of what He did for Lazarus. But there's not one single word, not one mention, nothing implied even about anyone believing. Jesus is drawing so much attention to Himself And people are gathering to Him, flocking to Him in such mass that the Pharisees feel like they've been defeated. They feel like they've lost the day. From their perspective, it looks like everybody is devoted to Him. Drawing the people away from them. He's never, Jesus has never once until this point posed such a great threat to their power and their influence and their spiritual authority. It looks like a day of incredible devotion. And in one sense, I suppose it is. There's an incredible sense of joy and victory in the air, and yet we know that it's not going to last. It's not even going to last a week. It's all going to evaporate in about four days. These same people who have heralded and celebrated and welcomed Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. These same people who are welcoming Him as their Prince Messiah. They will all, they will all fall away by Friday. 
When Jesus told the parable of the sower and the seeds, it was a warning about false conversions. It was really an illustration of how and why apostasy happens. Listen to this, Jesus instructed. Behold, the sower went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched because it had no root. It withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seed fell into the good soil. And as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100 fold. Mark concludes by telling us that Jesus was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he said that, when Jesus said that, he was saying, There are only certain people who are going to understand this. That's what he who has ears to hear, let him hear means. And the disciples were puzzled by this parable. What could it possibly mean? Why was Jesus giving them a lesson on agriculture when He normally preaches about the kingdom? They were just incredibly confused by the whole thing. And so they did the wise thing. They brought their questions and their concerns to Jesus. And Jesus' initial response underscores the importance of carefully considering His teachings and thereby coming to a clear understanding of His teachings. Understanding Jesus correctly, friends, is very, very serious business. So He says to them in Mark 4.13, He says, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? He then proceeds to explain it to them. The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. They apostatize. Let's consider this second type of soil for just a second because this describes the people who have come to Jerusalem for the Passover who have been celebrating Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. They recognize that He's claiming to be the Messiah. And they're receiving Him with much joy. And much excitement. There's an emotional charge in the air. These are the people represented by the rocky soil who, when they hear the Word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves but are only temporary. It describes these people. They're emotionally charged about Jesus. Isn't it crazy that there is an emphasis in so many churches to manipulate people's emotions to get them excited about Jesus? That's what this passage warns us against. Emotional highs. Emotionally charged devotion. Emotionally charged anything is going to burn off in time. That's why divorces happen after about two years in marriage. You know why? Because they were emotionally Driven. You had the butterflies in your tummy. And within two years, that doesn't happen anymore. So you move on. Jesus continues explaining the parable. He says, And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word. But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil, and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Every single apostate falls into the categories of the rocky soil or the thorny soil. They appear to welcome Jesus, and they appear to have believed because of 
the emotional charge because of the joy with which they received Him. The problem is that it's all emotionally driven. And our emotions don't last. They burn out. They only last so long. They spring up quickly. But what if there's no root? And without a root system, what's going to happen? A plant is just going to die. Or, or they appear to welcome Jesus, but something else is their highest priority. Something else reigns supreme in their hearts, and whatever that something else is becomes like a thorn that chokes out the Word and the individual falls away. Because you can't serve Jesus and fill in the blank. You just can't. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and anything. In the case of these people, let's consider their expectations. Because their expectations are correlated with the greatest desires of their hearts. They were expecting, they were desiring the Messiah to be someone who frees them from worldly, physical oppression. In their case, what kind of oppression were they facing? Oppression from the Roman Empire that was occupying their land. And so their expectation was that the Messiah would come in and that He would lead a revolution against the Roman Empire and their occupation of Israel's land. They wanted, these people wanted a worldly leader. They wanted a worldly revolutionary. They wanted a worldly king. They wanted someone who could do what David was able to do on the battlefield. Of course, David was a fierce warrior. But little did they understand that Jesus had come to do what David couldn't do. Indeed, what no man was capable of doing. He came to free them not from physical oppression, but from spiritual oppression. He came to free them from being enslaved to sin. He came to bring spiritual freedom, not physical freedom. He came to heal His people spiritually. And He illustrated that whenever He healed someone physically. And when Jesus doesn't live up to these expectations that these masses of people, these hundreds or thousands of people have, when He doesn't live up to their expectations by the end of the week, every single one of these people turned on Jesus and called for His death. Friends, you must make sure that you are devoted to Jesus for the right reasons for the right reasons. Because if you are devoted to Him for the wrong reasons, your devotion will burn out. It will be superficial at best and it will not withstand the test of time. Just like these people. This principle is exactly why I get so upset, so, so charged and angry when preachers give their hearers a false expectation about Jesus. I've, I've told the story of uh, a few years ago when Christina and I went on vacation in Hawaii and we figured we'd visit a church. And we visited a church and the preacher preached that uh, if you believe in Jesus, all of your troubles in life will disappear. That is absolutely False. That is absolutely wrong. In fact, if you believe in Jesus, your problems in life might become greater. They might multiply. The problem with telling people that their problems will go away if they'll believe in Jesus is that you're trying to manipulate them. You're lying to them. You're setting them up to walk away from the faith when their problems don't go away. And they'll say, when their problems are compounding on top of them, they'll say, I've got all these problems that won't go away. This was not what I signed up for. This was not what I was offered. This isn't what I wanted. Another way you see this type of thing, these false expectations or these false ideas about who Jesus is and what He offers, is with prosperity teachers who promise that if you believe in Jesus... You'll be healthy and, and rich. As if there are no healthy and rich people in the world who don't believe in Jesus. Uh, maybe you will be, maybe you won't be. Either way, the Bible never makes that promise in exchange for faith. Like God's going to bribe you 
for believing. The Bible never makes such a promise that you'll be healthy and wealthy. No, even when a person is healthy or wealthy, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a reward for their faith. God gives to one man what he ordains as best and another man something completely different. And what happens with the prosperity movement when a person remains impoverished or remains in poor health or enters into poor health uh, after they've made a profession of faith? What happens to them? What do they start thinking? They're thinking, wait a minute, I, I thought that if, if I believed in Jesus, I would be you know, rich and, and that my health would be good. And the prosperity movement, in response to those types of questions, they'll say, well, it's your fault because you didn't have enough faith. So it's your fault that you're not rich beyond measure and that you're not healthy because you didn't have enough faith. If only you would have believed more, you'd be like me. Tell me that's not boasting. But then what happens? The person, if they have a head on their shoulders that can think straight, they will realize that it was a con. That it was a gimmick. The truth of the matter is, they never believed in the real Jesus to begin with. They started with a gigantic misconception about who Jesus is and what He came to do and what He offers to those who follow Him in faith. One person to this day I am so thankful for is Pastor Steve Larson. He was the pastor of Conejo EV Free uh, Church in 1993 when I was saved. He's the pastor whom God used to preach the gospel to me when I was lost in college. See, early in my Christian walk, I, I started reading prosperity teachers, I started watching them on TV. And what I was picking up from them was apparently starting to show in my conversations and the way I thought about Jesus. Because I remember having breakfast with Pastor Steve one morning, and he asked me point blank in response to something I had said, he said, what have you been reading? And I told him. And it wasn't good. It was, it was evil. It was It was wrong. It was setting me up to have false expectations about Jesus. It was setting me up to be an apostate. To walk away from the true faith. And I will never forget the way that Pastor Steve diverted me away from that false gospel and back to the true one. If you have the wrong idea about who Jesus is or what He will do for you, in this life, you will eventually walk away. You will be disappointed and you will likely walk away for good if your thinking isn't corrected early on. If you've believed in Him for the first time with much joy and excitement and with an emotional charge, praise the Lord, but be careful. Be careful, because your emotions, A, will deceive you, and B, they will burn out and fade away. And if you've believed in Him, but He's not your highest priority, like the thorny soil, to be straightforward with you, you must be extremely careful. There is a very good chance that you haven't followed Him to begin with. Because... Following Jesus means denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Him. And if He's not your highest priority, can you really say you've denied yourself? Can you really say that you've taken up your cross? And if you can't say those things, can you really say you're following Him? Judas followed Jesus. But Jesus wasn't Judas's highest priority. Judas wasn't denying himself. Judas wasn't carrying a cross. Judas was more devoted to himself and to his own ambitions and to his own desires than he was to Jesus. And for that reason, Judas failed to see that Jesus was worth far more than a bottle of perfume that was worth 300 denarii. He failed to understand that Jesus is worth absolutely everything. It, and Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they did realize that. 
They were rightly devoted to Jesus. They realized what Jesus is worth. He was worth risking their lives for. He was worth dying for if that's what the consequence of being supremely devoted to Christ involved. He was worth the best they had to offer. He was worthy of their highest devotion. And friends, I want to tell you today that He alone is worthy of your highest devotion too. He alone is worthy of your supreme highest devotion. The Scriptures warn us that people will fade away. Sometimes they warn us you know, the way that Jesus taught this parable. Sometimes they give us a story of people who fell away. Parents, take this stuff to heart as you disciple your children. You are their primary disciple-maker. That's the role that God has given specifically to you. But you must develop deep roots. And the way to develop deep roots is by watering regularly, prayerfully, patiently, and faithfully. Your children must understand who Jesus is and what He has promised. Why we do things like going to church every single Sunday while our neighbors sleep in or watch football. Why we study the Scriptures throughout the week. Why we don't do so many of the things that our neighbors do. Why our lives look so different than theirs. And not only this, but you must train them. You must do these things without being a hypocrite. Guess what? To an extent, we're all hypocrites, aren't we? Because we have one standard. We have God's standard. But even we don't live up to that. But your kids need to see that you know that. Your kids need to see that you know that you don't meet the standard that you're asking them to live up to. They see your life. They see it up close. They see it under a microscope. And they will study it. And if your lips don't line up with your lifestyle, they're going to notice. If you're going to be the chief of sinners in your house, make sure that your kids see that you're also the chief of repenters in your house. That's the advice from somebody much wiser than me. Let your kids see your repentance. Make sure that they see it. Make sure that they see it because that will tell them that Jesus really is the object of your supreme devotion. And that He alone is is worth being your highest, highest object of devotion. Scripture warns us that people will fall away. Judas. Judas fell away, of course. Why? Because he was primarily devoted to himself. In the book of Acts, we see Ananias and Sapphira. They fell away. Why? Again, They are supremely devoted to themselves. Uh, Don't forget Simon the Magician. A man man who not only made a, a profession of faith, but he was even baptized following his profession of faith in Christ. In Acts chapter 8, verse 13, he fell away for a very simple reason. He had followed because he was a magician and he wanted to be able to do all the miracles and all the signs and all the wonders that he was seeing Philip and Peter and John, the apostles, doing. Upon hearing that the people in Samaria were coming to believe in Christ under the preaching and the works of Philip, the apostles sent John and Peter to go to Samaria from Jerusalem to pray for the people. And we start reading in Acts chapter 8, verse 17. Then they, uh, Peter and John, then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowing through the laying of hands, of the, of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, if possible, the, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, 
Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And that's the last we hear about Simon the Magician. Now let me ask you, which type of soil was Simon the Magician? Is he the type who receives Jesus with joy, but that joy just fizzles out? Or was he the type that has higher priorities than Jesus? So he follows him for a while, but eventually those other priorities take over and drive him away from Christ. He's the second one. He's the thorny soil. The truth is that Simon the Magician didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. And that's how this passage ends. That's what we see at the end. He wasn't even willing to pray for forgiveness. He says, you do it. I'm too busy. I've got other things to do. You pray for me. What he wanted was power and authority. He didn't want forgiveness. He wanted something that Jesus doesn't offer. And he didn't want what Jesus does offer. And so that's the last we hear of him. Friends, you must not follow a false Jesus. And you must make sure that you're following Jesus for the right reasons. That you're not following him because you have some kind of false expectation about him. These people in John's Gospel who so joyously and so excitedly welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem were doing both of those things. They had the wrong idea about who Jesus was. They had the wrong idea about what Jesus had to offer. And that's why they would fall away before the week was even through. You must follow Jesus for the right reasons. The right reason is because of who He is. Because of who He is. He is God incarnate. The Holy One. Because when you follow Him for who He says He is, not what you wish Him to be, not what you think He should be, then you will realize and you will live in light of the fact that He alone is worthy of your supreme devotion. So fight off every temptation. Resist every impulse that would contend for that spot in your hearts of having the highest place, of sitting on the throne. Reserve and defend that spot for Jesus and for Him alone. Why do you follow Jesus? I can't answer that question for you. Only you can answer that question for you. Why do you follow Jesus? Somebody might say, I follow Jesus because He makes me a better spouse. Or He makes me a better parent. Or He makes me a better business partner. Or a better neighbor. Or a better human being. Or just go on down the line. And those things may or may not be true. Hopefully they are. But that's not the first and most important reason to follow Jesus and to believe in Him savingly. Because if that's why you're following Jesus, if that's the main reason you're following Jesus, then what will you do when someone or something else promises to do the same? And you see your neighbors, your unbelieving neighbors, becoming nicer people. What will you do then if that's the reason you're following Jesus? Ultimately, this kind of reasoning boils down to following and believing in Him for your sake so that you can be a better person, a better neighbor, a better whatever. So what I would urge you to do today, friends, is to follow and to believe in Him not for your sake. That's secondary at best but to follow and believe in Him savingly for His sake, for His glory, because of who He is, the one and only Son of God, eternal God in human flesh, God's anointed One who is the rightful King over every heart, the One who lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death in order that all who believe in Him may be saved from the penalty of sin by having His righteousness credited or imputed to them. He's the One who died but rose again on the third day, who ascended into heaven and even now reigns over His kingdom from the right hand of the Father. He's coming again in power and glory to raise and to judge the living, and the dead. Follow Him and believe in Him for who He is. 
not for what you want him to be or what you think he should be. Because he promises us something better, way better than a life without problems. He promises that as we face problems, he'll be using those problems for our good and for his glory. He'll be with us and he'll be using whatever circumstances we face to make us more like him and to bring glory to himself. And friends, there is not a higher calling. There is not a higher purpose than that. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so I urge you to know and believe in Jesus because of who he is and to make him, therefore, the supreme object of your devotion because that's how you avoid becoming an apostate. That's how you ensure that you're not setting yourself up for disappointment with Jesus. That's how you ensure that you have the kind of faith and devotion that will persevere and last until the end. Let's pray. Our most precious and gracious and merciful God, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You for revealing Yourself fully through Him. Revealing Your heart. Revealing Your mind. Revealing Your thoughts. Revealing Your ways through Him. And Lord, as we read a passage like this, may it cause us to examine ourselves and to judge ourselves rightly. Father, our desire is to have a faith that, that lasts. And we recognize that, Lord, there will be many troubles that come in this life that will challenge our faith. But what man and what our enemies intend for evil, you will use for good. We thank you for those promises. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would conform us more and more into the image of Christ, that ours would not be a faith that is just nothing more than an emotional, emotionally charged instant in our lives that comes and goes. But we pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us a faith that lasts. Lord, humble us and remind us of the fact that we are safe and secure in your hands not because we cling so tightly to you, but because you cling so tightly to us and nothing will be lost from your hand. So teach us, O oh Lord, to live in light of these truths. Help us to not only make Christ our highest object of devotion, but to keep him there. We pray that he would be there in good times and in bad times, that he would be strengthening our faith that he would be growing us in his likeness, and that he would be glorified in our lives. Because that's our purpose. That's why we're here. And we pray unto that end that you would cause it to be so in our lives for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.